Turn your Bibles tonight to Psalms chapter 102. Psalms 102 tonight. And uh, boy, hadn't the Lord been good to us already today. I appreciate His presence this morning. And uh, I'm glad the Lord meets with us, aren't you? I'm glad there's a place we can go. And I listen, I know He can meet with us anywhere. Uh, but you know, there, there's it's kind of like us. You know, we can meet somebody. If somebody said, I need to meet you somewhere, we could meet anywhere, but there's places we'd want to meet. Amen? There's places we'd prefer to, to, to meet. I about said eat. But, you know, that's true as well. Amen? We usually have places people say, well, where do you want to meet? And you'll have certain places that you want to meet. And I listen, I'm glad the Lord can meet us anywhere. But I'm glad, praise the Lord, there's some places He wants to meet us. Amen? And I'm glad we can come to the house of God and it's a place that God wants to be. Psalms 102 tonight. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read most of the chapter, not, not the entirety of it, but most of it. We'll read down to verse 23. The Word of God says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come unto Thee. Hide not Thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline Thine ear unto me. In the day when I call, answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke. My bones are burned as in heart. My heart is smitten and withered like grass so that I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I watch and am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. Mine enemies reproach me all the day. They that are mad against me are sworn against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of thine indignation and thy wrath, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. My days are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth thy glory. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute, not despise their prayer. This shall be written for the generation to come and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven did the Lord behold the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and His praise in Jerusalem. When the people are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord, He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. Let's pray together. Father, we love You tonight. Thank You for letting us be in Your house. Thank You for Your Word. Now help us these next few moments to rightly divide the word of truth, Lord, and to rightly submit our hearts unto you. And we'll be sure to thank you for it, Lord. We love you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice particularly the very last verse that we read tonight, verse number 23. And we're going we're gonna to sort of work, walk our way through this chapter up to this point. But it reaches a, a, a profound statement in verse number 23. The psalmist says this about his relationship with the Lord. He says that the Lord weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. Now, to understand a little bit about the frame of mind that the psalmist is in, we can read that little subheading that's provided at the beginning of some of the psalms 
the little subheading in this one. If your Bible don't have it in there, you ought to try to get a Bible that has one in there. Amen. It says this, a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before the Lord. Now let me just say a word. This isn't in my notes. It wasn't on my on my uh, plan to say. But let me just say this, boy. I'm glad there's psalms like that in the Word of God. I'm glad that every psalm ain't written for somebody that's treading the clouds and the glory and and feeling good and feeling strong. I, I'm I'm glad that every psalm ain't written for somebody that's marching in victory. Because there's days that I'm not. There's days, hey, there's days I enjoy those psalms that talk about marching in the victory. But there's days, man, I need this psalm. There's days when I feel afflicted. There's days when I am overwhelmed. And there's days when the sum total of my prayer life is pouring out my complaint before the Lord. I'm glad to know there's some psalms for fellows like me here in the Bible. There's some moments uh, in the psalmist's life in which the Lord exposes that His people sometimes are weary, are discouraged, and need encouragement. Don't we have a good God that knows us this evening, that knows what we so desperately need? So the frame of mind that the psalmist is in is very important here because it sort of leads up to and informs the statement that he makes in verse 23. After making a lot of statements about his own pitiful plight and situation, making statements about his confidence and faith in the in the right judgment of God and in the holiness of of God, the psalmist reaches one simple conclusion in verse 23. He speaks about how that the Lord has a plan for the ages, a plan for Israel, how that God's plan has not been canceled, it's not been disrupted or derailed, God's in control of everything, but he must reconcile it with the own, his own troubles, his own sufferings, his own afflictions that he is experiencing. And so he reaches a very simple conclusion that I think all of us must eventually reach when we're in the midst of a he reaches the conclusion that though there may be a lot of external pressures and reasons that led to his suffering, in fact, it's been the Lord himself that has brought him to this place of weakness in his own personal life. Listen, there's a lot of things that we should not blame on God that we do blame on God. And there are a lot of things that we really ought to give God credit for that we're too scared to. You know, it could be this thing that we're going through in our life, whatever it may be. And I listen, I don't have a crystal ball. Even if I had one, it wouldn't do no good. It might be worth something. I don't know. The dollar ain't worth nothing, so maybe crystal is. But uh, I know crystals are. We're about to get off in the tracks, amen. But I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what may be going on in your life. But just in a group even this size, there's probably some folks in here going through some things. And listen, it'll be a great day in your walk with the Lord when you come to realize that the things you're going through didn't surprise God. And that God is using them likewise in your life with distinct and divine purpose. There's a lot of things we may blame for our weakness, but here's what the psalmist says. The psalmist says of the Lord that He weakened my strength in the way. Did you know, I think sometimes we have a tendency to view things in these terms. As though all of the circumstances of life beat us down, But then here comes the Lord and His faithfulness along to sort of help us along the way and pick us up and encourage us. Now, I would say this, certainly when we get beat down in life, the Lord does that for us. And bless His holy name that we have a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. But there are a great many times in your life when it's the Lord Himself that kicks the props out from underneath you. The Lord Himself that introduces weakness into your life. The Lord Himself that brings you to this place 
of desperation. We can't believe we have a sovereign God and not believe that sometimes that sovereign God is okay with the suffering when it brings about holiness in our life. For certainly God permits us to suffer in such a way that cleanses us and consecrates us for His glory. Could it be that sometimes we look at it and say, well, the whole world's beating up on me, but I know God's going to give me strength. Could it be that it's the Lord Himself that is introducing the suffering into our life because He's trying to do something for us, through us, and in us? A great many times we blame it on other things, but the psalmist has the wisdom and the nuance here to recognize that the things he's experiencing were not separate. They weren't isolated. They weren't divorced from the hand of God, but rather they were dispensed by the hand of God and that God was behind all of this in his life. I want you to notice three things tonight in our text, and we'll see how this will go, but I believe the Lord, he he used it in my heart. I trust he'll use it in, in yours as well. We have a statement here, but as is often the case in the Word of God, this statement can have several applications. I would say, number one tonight, we have in this psalm a statement about the psalmist himself. David pins this down. I'm assuming it is David. We have no reason to believe it is not. This psalm is not particularly attributed to David. And I just, when a psalm's not attributed to anyone else, I assume it was probably David that pinned it down. But whoever it might have been, uh, this psalmist is entering a time of deep affliction in his life. This is a journey for him where he's struggling. He's going through a dark place and he comes to a place of peace in recognizing the providence of God over it all. What can we learn about the frame of mind the psalmist was in in this chapter tonight? I would say number one tonight, we see that he feels deserted in this psalm. Look at verse number one. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come unto thee. Now, why would a man pray that unless he felt like he wasn't being heard in the first place? And in fact, he sort of betrays that thought in verse 2. He says, hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call, answer me speedily. You know, I'm right now growing up in a home where my kids are growing up. I quit growing up years ago. I'm growing out now, but I ain't growing up anymore. Uh, but I, I'm raised, I've got two boys growing up in our home, and they've got selective hearing. You pray for them. Sometimes they, you'll say something, and, and if it's something they want to listen to, they'll hear you right away. And then other times you'll say something, and somehow they'll just be distracted, and they won't hear a word of it. I found that the rod of correction fixes that better than anything else, but there are times whenever you're speaking to them, and, and if they're not listening, you'll say things like this. I, I'll look at them, I'll say, now pay attention to me. I'll say, now listen to me. I'll say, now turn and look at me. I'll say things like this if I call across the house. Because I need, I don't know, something's two feet away, but I mean, that's what I've got a child for. I shouldn't have to get up. And I want them to come in and get it. And I'll call into them and they, they don't answer. I'll say, you answer me when I call you. Things like that. Why do we say that? Well, as a dad, the reason I say that is, one, it's my God-given right to do it. But number two, I say that because I feel like I'm not being listened to. I'm not being listened to. The psalmist is doing something similar here. He is praying to the Lord, but he feels as though he's not being heard. And he is he is giving an injunction to God. He's saying, don't hide your face from me when I am in trouble. Lord, incline your ear to me. Lord, in a day when I call. Well, this is a day when he's calling. He says, answer me speedily. You know, there are times in your life, even though we all know God's there, when he, we feel like he's not. 
There'll be moments in your life when even though you could quote every verse that gives the theological basis and confidence that God is present in the life of every believer, there'll be days when you feel somehow as though He's distant. You won't be able to explain it. You'll be too scared to articulate it. You'll be like like Asaph there in the 73rd Psalm. You'll say, when I thought couldn't do it, I wouldn't do it. In other words, Asaph says, I, I wanted to tell folks, but I was afraid what they would have thought of me if I had done that. There'll be days when you won't want to whisper aloud. You don't want to be thought a reprobate. There'll be days when in the day, in the quiet places in your heart, you'll wonder sometimes if the Lord is really there present with you. This is a day like this for the psalmist. He feels deserted. Number two, he feels discouraged. Verse number three says this, for my days are consumed like smoke. My bones are burned as an hearth. He's using this language figuratively. He's saying this, it's eating me up inside what I'm going through. He says, my heart is smitten. He feels heart sick over this and withered like grass so that I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, he says, my bones cleave my skin. He said, people can see the despair on my face. In other words, not only is he going through suffering that he can't explain, but he can't find God in the midst of it. And this is all bringing him to a place of great despair in his life. Uh, one of the things we, we sing uh, the song, I can't remember exactly which one it is. I, I think it's what a friend we have in Jesus that makes the statement in it uh, that we should never be discouraged. Listen, I, I, I appreciate the, the, the songwriter's optimism. <laughs> And I would say that's true. We always have something to rejoice in. But the fact of the matter is, there's going to be times in your life you're going to feel discouraged. There's going to be times you're going to wonder if it's worth it to get up and go on. Times when you're going to look at it and say, what, what's the point in all of it after all? Now you might say, well preacher, nobody's life is that bad. No, but our flesh is. Our life may not be that bad, but our flesh is. And there'll be days that our flesh comes and, and whispers in our ear and says, what's the point of any of it after all? Why don't you just give up and quit serving the Lord? He feels discouraged. He feels like he cannot go on. It's affecting him physically, health-wise, mentally, emotionally. But not only that, I see that he feels disoriented. Verse number 6, he uses interesting language. He said, I am like a pelican in the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. I watch and am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. In each of these three instances, he's speaking of creatures of isolation, being alone. He says, my enemies reproach me all the day. They that are mad against me are sworn against me, for I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of thine indignation and thy wrath. And then he says something interesting. He says, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. It's part of the reason I think it's probably David writing this. And though I wouldn't presume to try to peg this to a moment in his life when the Holy Ghost doesn't tell us when it is, certainly there were moments in David's life where he felt like he had been divinely exalted by God, elevated to a place of prominence and power and position, only to find himself all of a sudden cast out of that position. You could talk about him being elevated from the shepherd's field up to being the uh, sort of personal valet of King Saul, all of a sudden to draw the ire and hatred of King Saul. You could talk about him being elevated to being the uh, top military figure in the nation of Israel, uh, being the sort of the captain, the general over the army. 
then all of a sudden having to be a fugitive on the run for his uh, life. You could talk about him uh, being uh, elevated to a place of, uh, of security and, and of establishment in the throne of Israel only to then through his own sin and through his own disobedience uh, draw the judgment of God upon his life. You could talk about him being able to rest in his golden years in the security of the kingdom and the splendor of it only to have it wrestled away from him by Absalom over and over and over again in David's life. You can find these moments where God has lifted him up to a place of, of great privilege only then to cast him down in a moment's notice. Now, it could have been any number of other people that the Holy Ghost to pin it, uh, used to pin it. And it really doesn't matter because I'm going to tell you in a moment who that's really about. But suffice it to say in the psalmist's experience, he's sort of confused because it seemed like God was doing one thing and then all of a sudden God did the opposite thing. Sometimes in your life, it's going to look like God's doing something. And much to your chagrin, you're going to find out all of a sudden that wasn't what God intended. And it's going to leave you feeling disoriented. It's going to leave you feeling like you took a ride in the, in the tumble dryer on the high cycle and you come out not understanding what God is doing in your life. Listen, let me clue you in on something. If you have to have a good handle of every situation to live life, you aren't going to take uh, probably more than about three steps. There's going to be times in your life you don't understand what God is doing. If you will only worship Him when He makes sense, you won't worship Him very often. You've got to learn to worship Him when you can't figure Him out. You've got to learn to do like Job did when he said, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, in other words, he was saying, Hey, the Lord gave it to us. The Lord took it from us. I don't know why He did that, but I know He's good. And I'm going to praise Him anyway. Uh, the psalmist is disoriented. And on and on we could probably go cataloging these statements. But that's enough to show us that this is a statement about the psalmist his personal experience. But then I would say number two tonight, this is a statement about the Savior. I said a moment ago I was going to tell you exactly who in verse number 10 is being referenced. I'll tell you right now who it is. This psalm is part of a body of psalms that are known by theologians as messianic psalms. There were certain psalms in, in the book of Psalms that were written that cast a shadow that extended all the way to the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. And some of them, even farther than that, all the way to the millennial kingdom and to His enthronement. And this is a psalm that, that does that very thing. You'll find some statements in it that remind us of this. The first is in verse 10. Thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. Directly related to the divine imperative to exalt Christ, to, to uh, commission Christ to come to this earth, to magnify Christ, to glorify Christ, only to then find that the will and work of God uh, and of the Father cast Him down to Calvary uh, and to dying for man's sin. In verse 11, that sort of extended. It says, My days are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. Verse 12, But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever. We have this sort of duality being dealt with here where you have the humanity of the Lord Jesus in its frailty being referenced and then the divinity of the Lord Jesus in its power and immutability being denoted in verse 12. All these things the psalmist says are happening to me, but thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever and thy remembrance unto all generations. He says, Thou shalt arise 
and have mercy upon Zion. Well, that mercy couldn't happen except in light of Calvary. For the time to favor her, yea, the set time has come. He's looking far forward into the future to the coming millennial kingdom. He says, thy servant shall take pleasure in her stones, meaning the buildings, and favor the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth thy glory. He's looking forward to that splendorous kingdom when all of the world will own Christ as King of kings and of Lord of lords. He says, when the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. This, the psalmist says, shall be written for the generation to come and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. And that those people being created, it's not talking about just people being physically born. It's talking about a new people being born again. A new group of people talking about Christians, about people born again by the grace of God. And this is why that could happen. Verse 19, for he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From the heaven did the Lord behold the earth. It's talking about the uh, incarnation of the Lord Jesus. He looked down from heaven, saw mankind, saw what they were experiencing, and He chose to robe Himself in flesh and to dwell amongst us. Why did He do that? To hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and His praise in Jerusalem. Sort of sounds like the book of Isaiah that later on would be quoted by the Lord. Uh, Isaiah 61 would be quoted in the book of Luke when the Lord Jesus stood in the synagogue and read about how that He had come uh, to open the eyes of the blind, uh, to set at liberty, at liberty them that are in chains and in bondage, to heal those that are bruised, to bind up the brokenhearted. All of this is language that reflects the, the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary and the outpouring of grace that would then follow that. It says to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and His praise in Jerusalem when the people are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Once again, it leaps forward to that millennial glimpse. And then, strangest of all things, look what it says in verse 20. Isn't this a funny place for this to be here? In, in this sweeping... Uh, you know, escalating discourse on, on God's prophetic plan for the nations when it talks about how God's going to do all these things. And then all of a sudden, it just, it sort of like drops it. It just, just plunks it down right there in your lap. It says, He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. Now, why is it said that way? Well, I would say this, that in this psalm, we have a prophetic statement being given. This is often the case in Old Testament scriptures that when uh, the revelation of God was being given, uh, it would often leap sometimes hundreds or thousands of years as far as human years in the scope of what it was beholding and what it was looking at. And when you look at this language and compare it with what the Bible has said will one day take place regarding millennial kingdom, and then look and there's statements in here that, that speak about the earthly ministry of Christ and His incarnation, and there's statements that speak about the suffering of Calvary, it's almost like it's all jumbled together until you recognize that what you're seeing is you're seeing it from the perspective of God. God looking forward, the Bible tells it to us this way in the book of Hebrews chapter number 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, the joy that was set before Him, He was looking at what would be produced by the cross of Calvary. He was looking not at a cross, but at a crown. He was looking not at scoffers, but at, at saints. He was looking uh, not at rejection, but at redemption. He was looking at those things when He went to the cross of Calvary. Who for the joy that was set before Him 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand. Here's what he was saying. He was saying, let's just go ahead and get through this cross thing so that we can get to the crown. Let's get through this thing of suffering so that we can provide salvation for all of mankind. He didn't go and suffer because he enjoyed suffering. He did it because he looked beyond the cross and he saw the plan of God. And the same thing is being displayed here in this psalm. It's these sweeping scenes of, of the millennial kingdom and the promises of God regarding what God is going to bring to pass. But then it's almost like the, the, the psalmist is then dragged back down from those heavenly spaces and shown a glimpse at Calvary and being reminded how all of this is possible. It's possible because God weakened His own strength when He robed Himself in flesh and went to the cross of Calvary. You see, this is a prophetic statement about the Lord Jesus, this whole psalm is. But particularly, verse 23 reminds us what Calvary was. It was a willful, deliberate weakening of God's own strength for the sake of fallen mankind. It wasn't that God had wrestled or that man had wrestled God onto a cross. Rather, it was that he, no man could take his life from him. He laid down his life that he might take it up again. Nobody forced him on that cross. Hey, God, God gave his only begotten son. He chose to weaken the second person of the Trinity that mankind might be redeemed. This is a prophetic statement, but then when we consider it, it is a profound statement. How could God ever be weak? It is antithetical to the idea of who God is to imagine that God could experience pain, experience sorrow, experience suffering, and experience weakness. But that's exactly what the cross of Calvary was. Now, so splendorous is God that He could not experience those things without robing Himself in flesh, being made in the likeness of man in order to experience those things. But what a remarkable thing that God somehow packed all of the glory of heaven, robed it in the flesh of man, and then walked amongst us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus could be described in this statement, He weakened my strength in the way. For certainly, uh, the book of Philippians says it very clearly, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant. Uh, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In other words, he was willing to weaken his position, weaken the manifestation of his power, weaken the clarity of the, of the apprehension of his holiness and of his righteousness so that we could know God in redemption. It's a profound statement. I will never sound the depths of it, so I'll just move on. But suffice it to say that in this phrase, we have a, a sort of succinct and in a nutshell description of what Calvary was. And by the way, can I say this? He's still touched with the feelings of our infirmities. I'm not going to belabor this because I wouldn't have the time to develop it the way that I wish I could. But you understand, he's still robed in flesh. It's glorified flesh, but he's still robed in flesh. Prior to Bethlehem, he had never been robed in flesh. He had appeared unto men in the Old Testament, but he had never been robed in flesh. But he was made in the likeness of sinful men and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. He was robed in flesh when he was born uh, in, in, from a virgin's womb. And the Bible tells us this even after his resurrection. 
He now has glorified flesh, but he still has flesh. You remember he told Thomas, he said, come and feel the nail prints. Put your hand in the place where the spear was. And because of that, he is still able to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He hurts when you hurt. He, his heart breaks when your heart breaks. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. He literally tasted humanity and he tethered himself to humanity so that you and I could have an advocate with the Father. It's a profound statement. But then I would say this, it's a precious statement. To think He'd do all that for you and me. To think He'd do all that for you and me. You understand that by us choosing Him, it means everlasting peace and salvation. You understand by Him choosing us, it means everlasting pain and suffering. You understand that He tethered Himself to be willing to experience our heartache. And even to this moment, His heart breaks when our heart breaks. And He was willing to do that so that you could know God. We have an image and picture of this in Adam and Eve. You know, the Bible tells us this, that the woman was deceived, but Adam knew that he was sinning when he ate of the fruit. And in that, we have a picture of the Lord Jesus, who is the second Adam, who is the second one from heaven. Amen? And uh, Eve, of course, is a picture of the bride of Christ, which is the church. And the church, hey, listen, we were born into sin, but He became sin for us. Uh, we were born into this condition. We didn't choose to be this way. We were born into this condition. But just as Adam knew what he was doing when he tasted of the fruit, but he knew it was the only way that he could have fellowship. It was the only way that there could be a promised seed. It was the only way for a plan of redemption. So Adam said, I'll taste of that fruit. I'll taste of death. I'll partake in it if that's what has to happen for me to be with my bride and for there to be a seed one day that can redeem mankind. Listen carefully, I'm not trying to ennoble what Adam did. What Adam did was still sin. But any nobility in it is only there because it foreshadows the truly noble decision of the Lord Jesus in looking at broken man and saying they cannot redeem themselves, they cannot save themselves, but I'll taste of that fruit so that they can be redeemed. I'll be made sin for them that they might be made the righteousness of God in me. It's a precious thing to think about what's happened. We have a statement about the psalmist and we have a statement about the Savior. But when we consider both of those things together, what we find is a statement about the saint. You see, there's some things that if they're true about David and if they're true about Jesus, then they inform my life when I go through moments of suffering as well. I'll not really even preach these. I'll just mention them to you. You know what it tells me when I read this psalm? It tells me this, number one, there's providence in our weakness. I like the way the psalmist says it here. He weakened my strength in the way. In the way. In other words, his strength wasn't weakened because he got out of the way. His strength wasn't weakened because he got in the wrong way. He was in the way. He was going the right direction. Certainly we see this expressed in the person of the Lord Jesus who it was the very path that the Father had plotted for him that led him to Calvary. He wasn't ever out of the will of God for one moment. He set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem that he might fulfill. He said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Bless God, he finished it on Calvary. When he said, it is finished, he was talking about the work of the Father. He finished it. He wasn't out of the way, but his way led him through paths of suffering, paths of 
trial, paths of affliction, so much so that one of the names of the Lord Jesus that the book of Isaiah gives him is a man of sorrow and well acquainted with grief. Can I tell you this? There's going to be times that the will of God is going to bring you suffering. And you don't have to understand that. A great many times you won't understand it. But don't think just because you're experiencing suffering in your life that you must be out of the will of God. Now, sometimes we use all kinds of things to be barometers for where we stand with God instead of just making sure that we're walking with God and praying to God and listening to God. And you say, preacher, how do I know if, if my life, how do I know if what I'm experiencing is suffering or is, or is chastening? Well, let me ask you this. Can you talk to God about it? Can you talk to God about it? Can you talk to Him without having to get something changed, something different, something right, something settled? Can you talk to God about what you're going through without having to repent of something? If you can, there's a good chance it's just it's just God perfecting you. If when you talk to God, the Holy Ghost reminds you, now here's this area of your life that needs to be dealt with, well then it's probably chastening. Instead of trying to figure out all these little keys to, to whether or not what we're going through is chastening or, or is purging and perfecting, won't we just walk close to God and then we don't have to wonder? We can know there's providence in our weakness. God is in weakness sometimes. Uh, so Paul learned this, and I, I've refrained the whole time from quoting 2 Corinthians 12. I didn't think I'd do it, but I've made it this far. So let's go ahead and just go ahead and talk about it when Paul speaks about his thorn in the flesh. And he says that he came to the Lord and thrice he asked God to take it away from him. And I don't think that just means he, he happened to think about it when he was praying over his McRib. Amen. You don't eat them nasty things, do you? I was driving by the Arby's today. You know what it said? It said, we don't have no McFibs, but we've got real ribs. Amen. I didn't order one anyway. But, uh, I, you know, I don't think it's saying that Paul just occasionally, incidentally prayed on three different occasions and asked God to take it away. I think here's what Paul's saying. It went on and off my prayer list three times. I prayed and I sought God and I begged God. And then I reached a place where I said, maybe this isn't the will of God, so I'm just going to live with it. Then he found he couldn't live with it. So he began to pray again. And again, he became satisfied that it must be the will of God. And so he said, I'll bear it and I'll, I'll accept it and I'll live with it and I'll glorify God in it. But he found he couldn't do it again. And so a third time it came on the prayer list. And at that third time, finally God, God gave him peace about that matter. And this was the piece that he gave him. He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like he's talking about something different. Paul says, I'm just asking for this thorn. God, I never said your grace wasn't sufficient. I'm just asking for you to take this thorn away. I just don't want to suffer like this. God says, no, Paul, you don't understand my grace is sufficient for thee. Paul says, God, I know your grace is sufficient. It took an old rotten sinner like me, a, a persecutor of the, of the church of the living God and saved me and redeemed me, made me the apostle to the Gentiles and changed my life. I just want this thorn taken away. God says, no, Paul, you don't understand. My grace is sufficient for thee. And finally it dawns on Paul what God's saying. God says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. You can't have more grace without more grief. You can't have my strength unless you're willing to be weak, Paul. This very thing in your life that you're begging me to take away from you is the very thing that's 
giving you the most grace in your life. It's like Mephibosheth's lame and broken feet. It's keeping you at the king's table. Why would God take that away? My grace, Paul, it's sufficient for that. And all of a sudden, Paul gets what God's saying. That he would never be as close to God without that thorn. That if God took away that thorn, there'd be other things that would be taken away with it. I would say this. There's providence in our weakness, but there is profit in our weakness. Paul then says this. I will therefore glory in mine infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, I'm going to quit running from my suffering and start running to God over my suffering. And I'm going to quit viewing it as being some albatross around my neck, some great burden that I have to carry. And start just viewing it as God's beck and call when I'm having days and moments of weakness. Instead of shaking my fist at God, I'm going to start lifting up my prayer to God. And I'm going to recognize that what God has done with this is He has dug out a conduit a direct line between heaven and me. And now all he has to do when he wants my attention is lean on that thorn a little bit. And I just seem to come running. And instead of begrudging that, I'm going to start blessing him for that. And recognize that this thorn that I despise so much is the very thing keeping me close to God. And staying close to God is the very reason that God's dispensing grace and a door of utterance in my life and doing what he's doing in my life. I would say this, there's providence in our weakness. It's not by accident. There's profit in our weakness. Uh, God will bring things out of it for His glory and our good, but finally tonight and I'm done, there is a presence in our weakness. Did you ever think about this statement in its simplicity? He weakened my strength in the way. Now let me just say this, He couldn't weaken your strength if He wasn't there to weaken your strength in the first place. The fact that he's doing something means he's there. The fact that he's doing something means he's paying attention. The fact that he's doing something in your life, even something that you don't desire, means he's got a plan for you. Now this, of course, was true for the psalmist. The Lord was with David every step of the way. This, of course, was true for the Savior, for he was the very manifest presence of God. And not ere but once did the Father forsake him. And then, only for you and only for me on Calvary's hill. But you and I can say this. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. You know what that ought to produce in us? Hebrews writer says, Let your conversation be without covetousness. For as much as he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Covetousness is wanting what somebody else has, right? Anytime we're suffering, we wish we weren't suffering. Anybody anybody that likes suffering, you need to get yourself checked out. Something's wrong with you. Nobody likes suffering. But we ought to be satisfied with this, that if God has brought suffering into our life and lot, it is because we need that very thing. For He wouldn't do it by accident. And He wouldn't do it by incident. He only does it by providence in our lives. So we can rest assured that in our life, if He's weakening our way, Guess what? He's walking in our way. He's waiting in our way. His wisdom is in our way. He's all over our suffering and all over what we're going through. He's there present with us. Sometimes we don't like it. I've learned this with my kids. You know the scariest sound that you, when you're a parent, you're raising kids, the scariest sound that can happen when you've got two boys at home is silence. 
at least if I hear things breaking and no one's screaming, I know whatever they're breaking, it's not something I'm going to have to take them to the hospital over. Amen? And it was probably something I wanted to throw away anyway. <laughs> but when that silence comes, that's that's when oftentimes you worry. Well, listen, in your life, you may say, well, preacher, i got all this going on. i got all this affliction. i got all this suffering. Hey, stay encouraged. You know what that means? That means God's working in your life. Look for His providential hand in it. Scoot up close to Him. Lean into God and depend on Him more. You know what you'll find? There are times when He weakens our strength in the way. But guess what? His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want to invite you to come to the altar. God spoke to your heart tonight about something. Uh, you might be going through something or you might know somebody that's going through something. You might want to pray for them. But whatever it is in your life, whatever it is you're experiencing, whatever it is that you're facing and battling, I'll tell you this, God's enough for it. He's more than enough. His grace is sufficient. And you ought to use that. Let that, let that affliction, let that problem be something that spurs you to the very throne room of God, to His feet, to seek Him for grace and strength. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.